All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We'll start right at the beginning. Revelation chapter 1, last book of the Bible, first verses of that book. That's where we will be today. So we are starting a series that we're calling Apocalypse Now. And anytime you're talking about the book of Revelation, that word apocalypse is going to show up. And so we've called it apocalypse now, not necessarily because we believe uh, that we are imminently in the apocalyptic end times. We could be, and we're going to explore that as we go through the book. But the word apocalypse doesn't actually mean what we have made it to mean. The word apocalypse comes from a Greek word, and it has come to mean either end times or maybe not even end times. It's come to mean disaster. Uh, it speaks to that. If something's apocalyptic, usually it means something's really, really bad, right? Something's gone very, very wrong. If I've worked on a home do-it-yourself project and my results are apocalyptic, then I've done a really, really, really bad job, which is probably what's going to happen. And so the word apocalypse has become so uh, infused with that sort of end time picture of of disaster and destruction, that, that that's just what we think of when we hear that word. But that's not actually where the word apocalypse comes from. The word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apokalupto, which literally just means revelation. So the book of Revelation is the book of Apocalypse. It is the book of Apocalypto. That's the word that John uses when he's writing this book. And literally, it means the word revelation is talking about exposing what has been hidden. The book of Revelation is exposing what has been hidden. The book of Revelation shows us something new about what heaven is like and about how God views what is happening here on the earth. And we'll get back into what uh, apocalyptic literature is a little later in the message. But that's what that word means. Apocalypto means revelation. It is the, the book of apocalypto. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ showing us things that have been hidden and exposing something new new to us as we seek him for his truth and for his revelation. When I was in high school, I was not walking with Jesus. I'd grown up in church, but I wasn't walking with Jesus. And a Christian friend said to me, uh, you need to go read the book of Revelation. So I had heard Revelation preached in the various years that I had been in church growing up with my family, but I had never read it. And so he said, you got to go read the book of Revelation. You have to read it. And so I went, and over the next few weeks, I, I read through the book of Revelation. And I came back to him, and he said, did you read it? I said, I did. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I honestly have no idea. That's the craziest thing I've ever read. And he said, aren't you terrified? And I said, well, not really. I don't get it. Like, I don't really understand what it is. So looking back now, I think that was his whole evangelism technique, was find an unbeliever, make him read the book of Revelation, freak him out, and then hopefully point them to Jesus through the process. So it didn't actually unfold that way in this particular conversation. But Revelation is a weird book. It stands out from Scripture as unusual. Uh, when you read through Revelation, there are all sorts of images and all sorts of pictures. There are horsemen and there are armies and there are monsters and there's a dragon and there's a, a woman crowned with the stars of the sky and there's all sorts of things in there that are, are really, really confusing. And with that, there's a lot of judgment. And that's one thing that Revelation actually is very clear on is that God is pouring judgment out on the earth. 
And so there are these pictures of judgment that are coming. And in all of these things, I mean, if you don't know what you're reading, if you don't know how to approach it, it can be very confusing. It can be very overwhelming. I, one of my courses in seminary was on the book of Revelation. And so the professor who taught this course had been teaching it for like 30 years. You can't be an expert in anything when it comes to Jesus. But if you could, he would be considered an expert in the book of Revelation. This is where all of his scholarship went and what his life's work had been. And he started off the class, he said, most of you are going to get a C in this course. And that's okay, because Revelation is just a tricky book, and I'm not looking for you to, to master anything. I'm looking for you to wrestle with it. I'm looking for you to engage with it. I'm looking for you to open up your minds, and it's just a tough one. It's a tough one to figure out. So just be okay with that, which most of us weren't actually okay with that. But he, he was, again, if anyone's an expert, you could probably call him an expert, and even he was saying, this book is unusual. It's hard to figure out. And so when I hear preachers saying, here's what Revelation means, like without question, here's what's happening, here's what's going to happen. I always just take that with a grain of salt because Christians have been wrestling through this unusual book for 2,000 years. And so I really want us to have that posture of humility as we go into this. When you ask people, what do you think about when you think about the book of Revelation, even for Christians who know it and are somewhat familiar with it, almost inevitably, People think about the book of Revelation and say, oh, it's judgment, it's wrath, it's plagues, it's monsters, it's the great red dragon, it's chaos, it's turmoil, it's end times. And really, the book of Revelation is a book about Jesus Christ. It is a book about the gospel. It is a book about God's plan to ultimately restore everything and make everything right. It's interesting that often our first reaction to the question, what do you think about when Revelation isn't? Well, the return of Christ when God restores all things and brings us to that place where every tear is wiped away. Like, that's the end of the story. We already know how the story ends. And of course, there's a whole lot of other things in this book that clamor for our attention, and, and rightly so. But when we think about the book of Revelation, our initial response should be, this is a book about Jesus Christ. This is a book about him, first and foremost. And we will engage in all of the other things as well, but ultimately this is about Jesus. The book of Revelation was written by John. We'll get into that a little more next week. It was written specifically to seven real churches that lived in the first century. Seven churches in the province of Asia Minor that were going through a time of struggle and persecution. The book of Revelation was written specifically to them in one particular time, in one particular place. Now, as we believe in the inspired, infallible nature of all of Scripture, we believe that it has a message for us as well. It wasn't just for them. But it is a book that ultimately uh, brings about the message. If you want one big theme for the book of Revelation, the theme is Jesus Christ wins. That's the main theme of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ wins. We know how the story ends. There are also themes in there about perseverance. There are themes in there about not being corrupted by the world, not being corrupted by empire, by the power structures of this world, by being faithful, by holding on, by remaining holy and separate and different from the world. All of these things are there. But within it, the context of the, the book, the picture, the, the structure of the book, it honestly reads like Lord of the Rings, right? It reads like some sort of uh, fantasy novel, again, with dragons and monsters and armies and warfare and, and things happening in heaven and angels and eagles and all of these things going on. And so if you have ever been confused by this book, you can join the club. I could be the president of that club. 
But what I'm excited about is just to journey through it together as a church family and to spend some time uh, over the next little while just walking through it, some verses at a time, and to spend some time just really digging into the text together. So we're just going to do a few verses today, the prologue of Revelation And uh, I'm just going to lay some foundation today for where we're going to be going. In later weeks, we'll get much more into the richness of it. But today's just a bit of an introduction. So let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we'll read the first three verses. The revelation, the apocalypto from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So... There's no, like, angels or dragons or beasts or anything crazy in those verses. So today's going to be pretty low-key. We're just going to ease into the waters of this book. And so that's a prologue. That is John talking about just, here's a snapshot of where we're going to go in this letter as he writes to these churches. So throughout church history, there are four main ways that Christians have approached the book of Revelation. There are four schools of thought. How do we interpret this book? What do we make of this book? What does this book mean for us? There are four main ways this can happen. So Joseph, this is the slide that can stay up for a couple minutes. So the first way is called the futurist way. The futurist approach believes that Revelation outlines what is coming in the future end times. Revelation points to the end times, the great tribulation. Everything is going to come down the road right before Jesus returns. If you've grown up in church in the 20th century or 21st century, it is by far the most popular and ingrained way uh, that we look at the book of Revelation. That this is primarily about things to come as Jesus is about to return, and it points to things that are going to come as we get closer and closer to that time. It is so ingrained in us that some of you will get annoyed that I'm suggesting that there's any other way to read the book of Revelation. I'm okay with annoying you sometimes if it means we're stretching our brains, if it means we're seeking the Lord, and if it means we're digging into the text. So we have all grown up in church, uh, probably most of us anyway, with a viewpoint that the way you read Revelation is it's about futuristic things to come. That is not the only way the church in 2000 years has looked at Revelation, however. Another view is called the preterist view. The preterist view, preterist just means in the past, the preterist view believes that the book of Revelation was written to seven churches in the first century, and it actually primarily speaks to what was going on then. It's primarily speaking to what was happening in the early church. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't come back yet. All things haven't been restored yet. So not everything in Revelation has happened in the past. But preterists would look at the book of Revelation and say, uh, you know, we don't need to worry so much about how to, like, interpret this for what's coming in the future because we know that that Antichrist-like figure would have been uh, the Roman emperor. And we know that the Babylon that they talk about is the Roman Empire. And so we, we are viewing this book the way the early church would have viewed it, and we're trying to make sense of it through there. The historicist view was popular for a little while in church history. This believes that Revelation shares an ever-unfolding story that began in the first century and is ongoing today. So Revelation started when John writes to those churches and has been unfolding this whole time. We've been in the book of Revelation all this time, and as various plagues and and punishments and wars and things have happened in in the history of the world, uh, we can 
tie some of those things to Scripture. And so maybe this uh, judgment of God was World War II, and maybe this judgment of God was the Spanish flu. And so they try to look through it historically and say Revelation has been unfolding for 2,000 years, and it will ultimately cultivate in the return of Christ. And then the last view is called the idealist view or sometimes the spiritual view, and it believes that Revelation is a metaphor of the ultimate triumph of Christ and the faithful over the enemy. So they see it primarily as, we don't need to be looking at this for signs that we're interpreting. We don't need to be looking at it uh, in terms of literally seven years or literally uh, 10 kings or anything like that. But it is a metaphor for the struggle between good and evil that is meant to teach God's church to be faithful no matter what age they live in, to be safe from the corruption of the world no matter what time in history it is. So all of these views have been dominant at various times in church history. Um, All of them have strengths and all of them have weaknesses, but in the first few centuries after it was written, obviously the preterist view was the main view. We believe revelation is happening right now in our time in these first few centuries, and then Jesus didn't come back. The end of the book wasn't fulfilled, and so for a long time in church history, they approached revelation much more metaphorically, and and not that that means it's any less true, but they just believe that it is spiritual truth truth that is being communicated, so we don't need to count the number of there's going to be exactly this many plagues or the war is going to happen exactly like that. This is meant, this is still God's truth, but it is sort of like a a big Lord of the Rings style parable to teach us about the struggle between good and evil, the ultimate triumph of Christ, God's judgment upon the earth, all of that rolled up in there. For a little while, the historicist view was popular, and that tries to make sense of Revelation uh, in world history, and the belief that we've been living the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. The futurist view, which is to say that it's all coming in the future, is actually fairly new in church history. It's been around for a couple hundred years. And so I only bring all of this up to say that most of us have been taught that the way you're supposed to approach Revelation is that this is all stuff that's going to come in the future, and we can almost turn into like fortune tellers with a crystal ball, where the book of Revelation becomes like our crystal ball, and we're trying to analyze, well, who's the Antichrist going to be, and and who's this army going to be, and how is this all going to work out, because we're looking forward and futuristically the whole time. If I was teaching this series a thousand years ago, uh, that would just wouldn't be the viewpoint that most of us would have grown up in. And so I'm going to challenge that viewpoint. All of these viewpoints points have strengths. They all have weaknesses. The weakness of the futurist view that we've all grown up in is that if we approach Revelation really only as things that are going to come in the future, number one, it can force us into that crystal ball mentality where all we're trying to do is analyze for signs and symbols and, and connect them to reality. And the problem with that is every generation that has done that has gotten it wrong so far. So in the 1800s, when that became a very popular way to look at things, then it became, well, Uh, everything's going to come in the future, so who's the Antichrist going to be? Well, generally the Antichrist became whoever you were mad at at that time in church history. So the Antichrist is the Pope. No, it's not. It's the Russians. No, it's not. It's Bin Laden. No, it's not. It's whoever. And and, I mean, someone will be right at some point, I guess. But, uh, But it also ignores the fact that this was a book written to one particular group in one particular time. And any other Bible study that we would ever do from any part of Scripture, we would always begin with, what did it mean to the people who heard it when it was written, when it came to them? What was going on in their world? What was their culture like? What was the the part of Scripture addressing that was going on in their lives? And so we're not going to hang our hats on any of these, actually. We're not going to go into this totally futuristically. We will touch on it. Uh, We're going to 
but really ground a lot of it actually in the past. Because again, any good Bible study is going to try and understand what did this mean in the first century to people who are hearing it for the first time. We will touch on all of these a little bit. Uh, and so I'm just going to challenge you to stretch yourself a little bit. I also want to talk before we get back into the text, just in terms of laying foundation, about the type of book that Revelation is. So Revelation is a letter you'll notice it's very different from the letter Paul writes to the Romans, right? Or the letters that John writes, or the letters that Peter writes, or the letter of Hebrews, or the letter of James. Those are letters that read like letters. Revelation is a letter that doesn't read like a letter. Revelation is a letter that reads like a story. It reads, again, like that Lord of the Rings fanciful type story. And so Revelation is a different type of scripture. It is a different type. And so when scholars talk about Revelation, they will make Make note that this is a very specific type of writing called apocalyptic literature, or sometimes will be called prophetic apocalyptic literature. So this is just my definition of, of what this is. It is a genre of biblical literature in which a revelation is given by a supernatural being to a suffering human recipient, sharing a new perspective that brings hope to the situation, points to future salvation, and reveals what is going on in the spiritual realm. It is a revelation from heaven to earth about what is going on. And so we see examples of it in Isaiah. We see examples of it in Ezekiel. We see examples of it in Daniel. And so Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying in a hopeless situation, and the Lord shows up before him. And when the Lord shows up before Daniel, the Lord says, Daniel, you've been praying, and you've been fasting, and it's been looking like nothing is happening, but here's what's been going on in the spiritual realm for the last three weeks. There's been warfare. I've been fighting this principality. I've been making my way to you. And then he goes on to say, and here is the hope that is coming to your people. And here is the salvation that God has promised. And so that's apocalyptic literature. It's a heavenly being bringing a revelation to earth that is meant to bring hope to the situation. And that's ultimately what the book of Revelation is. It is a book of hope for the Christ follower. It is a book of warning to the world. It is a book of warning to the lukewarm. Christ follower as well. And so for all of us, there is tremendous hope and encouragement. And for all of us, there is a warning as well that we need to be aware of. And so when it comes to this type of uh, biblical literature, this genre, we need to know a little bit about it. Because people sometimes ask, and you've probably been asked this, uh, do you take the Bible literally? Right? You've been asked that maybe by an unbelieving friend. Do you take the Bible literally? So here's your answer. Ready? This is Bruxy Cavey's answer, teaching pastor at the meeting house. This is my favorite answer to that question. He says, I believe every word of Scripture is inspired, infallible, God-given truth. He says, I take it as literally as the genre allows me to take it. Because not everything in Scripture is meant to be taken literally. Some of it is poetry. We don't take poetry literally. There's a lot of metaphor in poetry. When Jesus teaches parables, nobody goes, well, what happened to that one prodigal son? What's the end of that story? It's like, no, that wasn't a real literal guy. That was a story. It was a metaphor. And so Bruxy's answer is all Scripture is God's truth. And metaphorical truth isn't less than, than literal truth. But if it reads as history, we take it as literal history, right? So when Jesus does a miracle, I believe that's literally true. 
Um, if it's in the prophets and there's a metaphor being used, we engage that and say, well, what is the truth that God is communicating through the metaphor? Now, some of us, again, have been taught literal is the only way, but I don't think anybody actually believes that because there is just a wide range of, of different genres in Scripture. So we take it as literally true as the genre allows us to. If it's written as history, then we take that literally true, but there's also room for poetry in there, and it doesn't make it any less true, just like when Jesus tells the parents of the prodigal son, it is not any less true because that's not a real guy. We just understand that that is a metaphor that he's using to communicate God's truth to us. So let's take a look at the verses of our text. Revelation 1, first part of verse 1. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, the apocalypto from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So this is how it all begins. And it's interesting, and, you know, we just talked about how well, when we think about the book of Revelation, it's very easy to think about all the kind of weird stuff and the crazy stuff and all of the confusing stuff, and that can kind of take over our minds. But when the book starts, John wants to make re very, very clear that this is a book from Jesus. It is about Jesus. And what's interesting about how this letter begins is that pretty much everywhere else in the New Testament, when a letter is written, and there's a bunch of examples here on the screen. Usually the way ancient letters start is you start by introducing yourself. The way we write letters now or emails, you put your name at the bottom, right? And so you write your email, and at the end you say, the Lord bless you from Chris, right? Chuck's in the room. Chuck writes, your hero, Chuck. <laughs> so Chuck signs every email. So you sign it at the bottom, and that's how people know who it is, or a birthday card or whatever, you sign it at the bottom. In the ancient world, you start at the top. You start off by saying, hey, this is the person who's talking. Chris is talking. Chuck is talking. There's an example on the screen here from Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1. Uh, one of the many examples up on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the way you start a letter is by saying, this is who I am, and if appropriate, here are my credentials. And so when Paul writes throughout all of these epistles, he always starts with the words, Paul. Paul is talking, or Paul and Timothy are talking, or Paul and this group are talking. Uh, and we see that as well in Peter's writings, in John's writings. So in the New Testament, the only other epistles that don't start that way are the book of Hebrews and then uh, 1 John. They don't start that way. John just jumps right into the theology. Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, they also just jump right into the, the theology. But generally, ancient letters start with, this is who's talking. And that's what's so cool about how Revelation starts, because he doesn't start by saying, John, he's going to get to that in a moment. But as he starts his letter, the first thing he says is, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that the other scriptures are less inspired by Jesus, of course. But John just wants to make very clear that this isn't me doing the talking. Jesus is the one who has brought this revelation. Jesus is the one ultimately dictating this letter. Jesus is the one talking. And it says that this is the revelation that God gave to Jesus that Jesus is now giving to his servant. When Jesus walked the earth in John 17, 25, and 26, he's praying. And he says, righteous father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. That one of the jobs of God the Son is to reveal God the Father. 
Jesus takes what God knows, what the Father knows, and he reveals that to us. And these first verses of Revelation point that out, that God has given the revelation to Jesus, and Jesus is giving the revelation to us. These words are being fulfilled in the book of Revelation. The revelation is ongoing. So we need to take a moment in the last part of that first verse. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, what must soon take place? And that word soon, man alive, if there was a, a more tricky word in the New Testament, right? As we're talking about the return of Christ, soon, soon, imminent, the imminent return of Christ. Uh, most statements of faith have a statement like that, the imminent return of Christ. We believe he's coming soon. And it's 2,000 years, and by most stretches of time, that would not be considered soon. Right? If my wife says, I'll be home soon, and she gets home two hours later, that would be a bit concerning to me. I would wonder where she was. What held her up? Is she okay? And so what must soon take place? And that word shows up uh, regularly in the New Testament. So first of all, this is where part of what helps us is understanding that there are different ways to approach this book. And so for anyone from that preterist view, which is to say that Revelation deals a lot with what was happening in the first century, that word soon doesn't have that much problem, right? Because Jesus has not come back yet. But a lot of the other things in Revelation, they would say, have already happened in the first century. And so we don't need to worry so much about that word soon. But we also have to shift our thinking. And when our thinking is challenged by God's word, it's not God's word that needs to change. It's our mentality that needs to change to go along with it. So 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. He's talking about the return of Christ. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So God's sense of time is nothing like our sense of time. We have this linear way of looking at things. God is outside of time. He is outside of space. And so he is not bound to earthly time the way we are. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. That is his promise to return, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as much as we can say, Lord, why is it not sooner, right? We are waiting for this. Where is the soon? Why is this not happening quicker? Verses like this help us to understand God's patience is a really, 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 really good thing. God's patience is giving us more time. God's patience is giving people more time to come to him. God's patience is delaying judgment. It's delaying wrath. It's delaying the end out of his mercy, out of his desire that he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. God is giving us more time. And so that word soon, we understand that our soon and God's soon are, are obviously not the same thing. That God began talking about Jesus in the Garden of Eden when sin first entered the world. It would still be generations until Jesus actually showed up. And, and our soon and God's soon are going to look pretty different. But that actually doesn't even matter because when Jesus walked this earth, the way that Jesus taught was not to uh, be worried so much about times, right? Not to be so worried about that. He would teach parables, like the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents and the parable of the faithful servant. And the point of all of this teaching and all of these parables is that he said, my people should be living always as if he could be returning. 
And, and we don't know. I mean, Scripture makes clear we're like a, a vapor, right? We don't know what our life's going to be. We don't know how long we're going to be here. So whether Jesus returns or whether we're in a car accident today, like we don't know when we might stand before him. And so the call of Scripture is not to, hey, you know, approach Revelation, and if you see the signs getting worse, that's when you should really kick it into gear as a Christian. The call of Scripture is always live your life as if he is coming back any moment. And uses pictures like, you know, if you knew when the thief was going to break into your house, you would stay up all night. Like, you would be alert. The, the virgin's parable that some were alert and some were not alert. The faithful servant, one was to, to, to be faithful and to be found doing what you're supposed to be doing when the master comes back. Jesus talked a lot about the master's going to return and you better be found ready when he does. And so again, that can be one of the dangers of viewing everything in Revelation as in the future, is that it removes some of the urgency from us, because if we go, well, I don't really see the signs of that book coming to pass, then it's easy to kind of, well, the, the, the return of Christ is probably coming down the road, and we can get lazy, and we can get complacent, but, but the idea of soon for us, the idea of the imminent return of Christ, isn't so much about a timeline and, and trying to nail down the exact time, it's about us living our lives in that posture, in that hope, in that expectation that we would be found in the master's house doing what we're supposed to be doing when he does return, that we would not be of the group that has gotten lazy and has gotten complacent. Next couple of verses, second part of verse one and verse two. He made it known, Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is kind of cool, because John seems to realize right away, uh, this is not just uh, a picture, this is scripture coming out of me. I'm testifying to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, and of course, Revelation is part of our word. And it is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The gospel is going to show up in the book of Revelation multiple times. There's going to be different ways where it is made clear that Jesus is the one who saves us. And the testimony of Jesus Christ is an important part of what the church does. All of us have come to Jesus ultimately because of someone else's testimony of Jesus Christ. Whether it was a Sunday school teacher or a preacher or your parents or a friend, we have all come to know Jesus because of somebody else's influence. Somebody else has pointed to him in a way that brought us to faith by his grace. And so that testimony part is something that is crucial for every believer. That is part of the way I know that even if church can't meet in person right now, the church doesn't need to stop. It's all going to depend on are we giving testimony everywhere we go? Are we continuing to share the story of Jesus in our workplace and with our loved ones and with our neighbors? Are we continuing to do that work? Are we continuing to point to Jesus? Because every single one of us who came to Jesus came to Jesus, of course, ultimately because of his grace, but because someone else shared the story. The gospel has always been shared through his church, through other believers. And so it is so important for us to be doing that as well. We're going to meet believers in the book of Revelation who are willing to die rather than compromise that testimony that Jesus Christ is the one who saved them. They were willing to endure persecution in order to do that. 
So Jesus has made this revelation known. He sends it uh, through an angel to John. We're going to meet lots of angels in the book of Revelation. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's a pretty good snapshot picture of what an angel is. Angels are ministering spirits created by God sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. They are there uh, for us, apparently. They are there to serve humanity. And we see a lot of different stories of angels in Scripture. We know that there are angels who are like warrior angels. There are angels who come to speak for God. There are angels uh, who come to worship. There are angels who do lots of different things. We'll meet a few of them in the book of Revelation. We are not uh, people who graduate to become angels when we die. Uh, That's a bit of a cultural idea that you die and you turn into an angel. We all just watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life coming out of Christmas where it's a dead person who's trying to earn their wings and uh, there's nothing biblical in that idea. We believe that angels are created beings created by God and they are here to help us. And so we will get to know them a little bit better through this series as well. Last verse, verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So there's built-in blessing to this book right off the bat. Do you want the blessing of God? You should. We should all want as much blessing of God as we can handle. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I've been doing that today. Blessings on me, everybody. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. And that word blessed, man, have we ruined that word? Have we sucked that word of all of its power? We say the word blessed like it's nothing. We say the word blessed when our dessert is good. I'm so blessed, hashtag blessed. Look at this, everyone. Here's me on vacation, hashtag blessed. I'm happy right now, I'm just so blessed. And of course we should be grateful. We should be grateful uh, for everything. We should be always thankful, always appreciative. But the word blessing has a weight to it in Scripture. Do you remember uh, Jacob and Esau, and Esau loses his blessing? He sobs in despair when the blessing of God is, is taken away from him. And so there's a weight to this word that we miss, and, uh, and we could spend weeks just unpacking that word. But, but the, the fullness of it, as I understand it, uh, is that the word blessing means to prosper to thrive, to literally to grow, to be enlarged because of the favor and goodness of heaven upon your life. It means to thrive and to grow, to prosper. We see in Scripture in the Old Testament, it often is related to uh, you know, children and, and wealth and health and land and different things. But the idea of to be enlarged, like to be growing, to be expanding, because heaven's power is with you. God's favor is with you. It's not that you have earned it, but it is just to be in that place where uh, you are growing, you are expanding, whether you're growing in your spiritual life or 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 perhaps in material blessings, maybe, but that's not really the emphasis in the New Testament in the same way. It's that you are blessed. You are prospering, growing, thriving, enlarging, expanding with the fullness of an open heaven that God is pouring out his blessing upon you, that the weight of his favor and his goodness is upon you. 
And, and we've maybe felt that or experienced that in different ways. I've had different times in my life where I go, I shouldn't have gotten that job, but I did because the blessing of God was with me. On paper, I wasn't qualified, but the blessing of God was with me or a prayer that got answered in a specific way. So it's not just about, hey, here's a picture of me on a beach. Aren't I blessed? Which, again, I think the heart of that is really, I'm grateful for what I have, and I acknowledge that every good thing comes from God. That's not a bad thing. But the weight of that word, blessing, is so much greater. It's so much more profound. And Scripture says in Ephesians, we have been given every spiritual blessing in Jesus. In Jesus, everything of God's goodness and his favor, everything that heaven has for us has come to us. And so these few verses start, there is blessing involved. There is God's favor, God's open heaven, God's enlargement, God's thriving that comes upon us as we read aloud the words of the prophecy, as we take them to heart. And, and that part is key. It's not just about listening. It's about taking it to heart. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Right? Take it to heart. Anybody can listen to a sermon and say amen. Anybody can read their Bible and say I agree. But are you actually living it out? Because if you're not, then we're violating this verse. If we're not, then James would say you're like a person who looks at themselves in the mirror, walks away, and then forgets what they look like. Like you're a fool who has just had a moment of clarity, and then you've just lost it. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. So don't merely listen to the words of Revelation. Let's take them to heart. That's where the blessing lies, as we take them to heart. It's the, the doing of the word, not just the hearing of the word. Revelation, as I said at the beginning, is an incredibly hopeful book. There is a ton of encouragement in there, and the Lord is there for people who are struggling, for people who are suffering, for people who are persecuted. The Lord is there all the way through saying, keep on going, keep on going, don't stop, keep on going. I will be with you. Keep on going. Your reward is with me. Keep on going. There is so much hope and encouragement there. But there is also warning as well. There is warning even for his church. And we're going to get into the seven churches in a few weeks. And he is not uh, always kind and polite to these churches. I mean, in his kindness, he is rebuking them. I just mean there's a harshness as well. There is a warning uh, when Jesus speaks to his church. And so we need to be ready to hear both of it. We need to be ready to hear the encouragement and receive the strength that he brings. We also need to hear the warning of Revelation and take that seriously because it is meant to spur us on to greater holiness, to greater faithfulness, to greater devotion. So that is just a bit of an introduction. We've called this series Apocalypse Now uh, just we're, because it means revelation, right? It is the revelation now. And so in terms of what we can be doing as we get ready to jump into this series, uh, number one, I'm going to challenge you regularly to open up your minds. Some of us have been taught there's only one way to interpret this book, and I'm going to stretch that and challenge that as we go through this. And it is not something that we need to be afraid of. We're just going to dig into the text, and we're going to see what the text has to say, and we're going to understand it together. We're going to wrestle through it together. So I would like you to be ready to stretch your minds. I would like you to prepare yourself to be encouraged by God's Word. I would like you to prepare yourself to be challenged by God's Word, to hear the warning of God's word, and I would like us to be ready to uh, just journey through it together as we say, 
okay, Lord, this is the time we are living in. And, and that soon, when you return, could literally be soon. It could be in our lifetime. But we don't know. It could be a thousand years away. We don't actually know. But either way, the Word of God says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for the person of God, for encouraging, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So our prayer can be, Lord, how is revelation useful to us now? How is revelation teaching us, correcting us, encouraging us, rebuking us? How is revelation preparing us right now for every good work that you have called us to in this time in which we live? Because God is speaking through his word to his church, and I am excited to jump into it with you guys. So as always, after we have received the word of God, we like to respond with worship, just in gratitude uh, to what God has spoken in his word. And so I will encourage you to sing with us. The words will be there on the screen, and then we will close in prayer. <laughs> 